You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Our scripture text today is in the book of Ruth, and if you would, to go ahead and turn there to the book of Ruth in chapter 1. And if you uh, don't have a copy of God's Word with you, no problem at all. Just reach out in front of you. You should be close by. You should see a Bible nearby under the chairs in front of you. Just reach out and grab hold of that. Go to page 208, 208. And we're in Ruth chapter 1. Of course, if you've got the app on your phone, that's great too. Just get God's Word open so you can uh, see it for yourself and follow along as we go through our text uh, today. Just while you're doing that, just give you a heads up that uh, next Sunday, July the 2nd, there will be no live stream of that service, okay? So next Sunday, July 2nd, there'll be no live stream. Following week, though, we'll have the live stream again. We, we, it's our habit to live stream the second service. Uh, we're not going to next week. The reason is, is because we have a guest speaker uh, next week who loves and follows Jesus in a part of the world where it's especially difficult to be a Christian. And um, for security reasons, for his own security, for his family, for his coworkers, and for people he serves, uh, he is willing, eager, glad to come and share with us. But the condition is that it cannot be on the internet. So we are honoring that. We know, I know that you're going to be so encouraged and so blessed by his ministry. But the reality is that we can't, we can't put that on YouTube. We can't live stream it for his own safety and the safety of those he serves with. So no live stream, no podcast next week, okay? And the following week, Lord willing, we'll be back in the saddle with that, but for one week only. So if you're away next week and you're like, I will tune into the service, it's, uh, you, have to, you have to go through to an archive service maybe, uh, but we won't be live streaming next uh, Sunday. And uh, I know you're going to be so encouraged and blessed by our brother who will be speaking here. Uh, God willing, I'm going to be at our sister church, uh, Hope Markham. And filling in there, uh, that's next Sunday. And um, we just trust the Lord's going to do great things. So get, get ready. You're going to be blessed by your time here next Sunday. Well, we're in our series in the book of Ruth. And we're in chapter 1 today. And we, were, we started the first part of chapter 1 last week under this theme in our series of experiencing God's goodness in life's bitterness. There we got it on the screen, the subtitle, Ruth, Experiencing God's Goodness. We believe that God is good. We believe that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. That's great. Right on cue. That's great. Even in life's bitterness. For some of us, maybe you're in a season right now where life is bitter. Let me ask you a question, just for everybody. In life's bitterness, do you sometimes question God's goodness? Like when life goes sideways, when trouble comes, when difficulty arises, do you find yourself questioning God's goodness? Like you would acknowledge that God is good. You, you completed my sentence there a moment ago. All the time God is good. But do you, when, when life is bitter, do you find yourself questioning God's goodness? Another question, when life goes bad, do you sometimes doubt that God is good? Like Seriously. I mean, seriously, it's just, you, it's just you and the Lord. You answer questions seriously. Do you sometimes doubt God's goodness? You, now, you might be sitting there thinking, oh, I don't, I don't doubt God's goodness. But the person sitting next to you, they do sometimes. It's very common. In fact, it's more common than we realize. Especially when we come to church together with our, our smiles and our songs. The reality is, is that there's, there's some of us here today that are doubting 
God's goodness even right now in the midst of life's difficulties. When life goes bad, do you doubt that God is good? Third question, does believing that God is always good depend on your life being always good? So this is a, this is a theological conviction question. Does believing that God is always good depend on your life being always good? Or to flip it around, when life starts going bad, is that when the doubts start creeping in? Or do, or do, you, do you ever find yourself rejecting this? Maybe rejecting it today. Does believing that God is always good depend on your life being always good? Now, take care how you answer. Like, answer these questions honestly, seriously. You might know what the quote-unquote right answer is, but seriously, the right answer is the true answer. If life is good right now, that the truth is, for you, you're going to need to prepare for when life goes bad. Because Jesus says it will. This is, he, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, I wish Jesus said, in this world, you will have money. I would have loved it if he'd said, in this world, you'll have endless vacations, something like that. But it's not what he said. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And so if life is good right now, like maybe you just said that to yourself yesterday, sitting outside, enjoying the warm weather, said, life is good. We're happy for you. But you got to get ready for when life isn't good. Because the person sitting behind you, life isn't good for them right now. And so for that person, I'll ask them. Let me ask you, if life isn't good right now, if it's hard right now, you need to come to terms with how you're going to deal with your God. If life is not going good, if it's going bad right now, if there's bitterness, you need to come to terms with how you are going to deal with your God. Because you're going to have to answer that question that comes up in your heart and your mind. God, where are you? God, don't, don't you see? God, don't you care? I mean, where is God when it hurts? You're going to have an answer for that question. You may have somebody else answer that question, but I'm interested in how you're going to answer it for you. For you. You're going to need to be able to reconcile God's goodness with life's badness. And that's exactly something that the book of Ruth helps us to do. And it's really at the heart of our passage today, helping us to bring together the badness of life and the goodness of God. Now, last week, we met a woman named Naomi, whose life went from bad to worse, and then worse still. Remember when we met her at the beginning of Ruth? Ruth 1 verse 1, we first meet her, and she finds herself in the middle of a famine. In her, home, her hometown, Bethlehem, which ironically means house of bread or house of food, there was a famine. There was no food. And remember, if you were here a week ago, we read the first part of the book of Ruth where her and her husband Elimelech and their two sons, Mahlon and Kilion, had to make the agonizing decision about what they were going to do in the midst of this famine. And what they decided to do was make the heart-wrenching decision to leave Bethlehem and to leave the promised land, this, this place that God had set aside for his people for Israel, a place that he said would be filled with milk and honey. They had to make the hard decision to leave Bethlehem. And they just decided to go over to Moab to a foreign country that wasn't that far away where there was food and to try to eke out a living there until, until they trusted that that food would return to Bethlehem. In fact, we, we read in the scripture last week and it says that they, they sojourned 
to Moab and to, to sojourn means you, you're going somewhere, but you don't intend to stay. You're just going there to visit for a time. Well, it turned out they actually stayed there probably for a lot longer than they thought, a lot longer than they hoped. They were there for years, for more than 10 years. And in that time, the situation was already bad, but then it went worse, didn't it? Because somebody died. Who was the first person to die? Do you remember? It was Elimelech, Elimelech, Naomi's husband. He, he died. And she was left then with her, her two sons. And I'm sure they were a great comfort to her. And they married two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then in the course of time, things, I mean, things got bad. They went worse. It got worse still because then what happened? Who died next? Mahlon and Kilion died, didn't they? And there she is. We, at the end of verse 5, we were there with Naomi, who is, well, she's bereft of her husband, her two sons. Her two sons never had children. Orpah and Ruth were also childless. And so there she is in a foreign country, and she's staring down the barrel of what is certain to be abject poverty. You recall in the ancient context, for her as a, an older woman, widowed, she is in a position where she is, well, let's just face it, she is going to, if she's going to make it, it's going to be a subsistence living. That's all she can see. Life was very, very bitter. She was going to have to struggle to survive. And in our text today, we're going to see her give full vent to her misery. She is going to, she's not going to hold back about how she feels about her situation and also who she sees as responsible for it. But we're also going to see that there is in this text for us vitally important perspective to help us reconcile the badness of life with the goodness of God. Let's read from Ruth 1, verse 6. So she's still in Moab. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And here's what it says happens. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. So in other words, to return home. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So, so the famine's over back home. Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband." Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, this is Naomi speaking again, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, 
do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, this scene we've just read here is really in two parts. The first part of the scene, actually a lot of the bulk of the narrative we've just read happens on a road, somewhere on a road between Moab and Bethlehem. The second part happens when Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, just the two of them. In the, now remember, it all began with this, this growing little family tree, Elimelech and Naomi, sons and daughters-in-law, but now they're just returning with just a couple little branches, just Naomi and Ruth. Well, as they got going on the way, of course, it all started when Naomi got word back in verse 6 that, that there was food now in Bethlehem. The, the famine was over, and there she was out in the fields of Moab, and I don't know what happened if other ladies in the field had Twitter and were sharing with her, or maybe they saw pictures on Facebook or something about, about the, the crops and the produce, all that's going on back in Bethlehem, but she caught word that God had, had while he had once closed his hand, now he had opened his hand, and there was food again in the house of bread. And so, just as I'd always intended to do, she went back home. But this time, of course, just with her only surviving relatives, her daughters-in-law. Now, I imagine that before they went, there was probably some discussion. At the very least, there was a lot of angst in Naomi's heart because she had to be really wrestling with the future of these two women. Whatever had gone on in this family dynamic, it seems very clear to me that there was real, genuine, deep affection for one another, that she had really grown to love Orpah and Ruth, and Orpah and Ruth had really grown to love Naomi. They were family, after all. They had married her boys, and they had spent a, better, a decade together, not just together, but, but doing life together, and then grieving together, and then working together, and, and, and everything. Their lives were so intertwined, and there was great love there. So, so don't misunderstand Naomi. She tries to get them to go back. It's not because she's tired of them. No, to the contrary, she loves them. But she looks at herself and says to herself, what have I done? I have nothing even for myself, let alone for these two women. They can't go with me. If they stick with me and, and press on with me, they're going to end up poorer than I am because they're even younger. And, and what can I give them? They, they have, this is crazy. They can't follow me. 
And so that's that whole interchange where she stops him and says, no, you've, you've got to go back. You've got to go back. Don't come with me. I've got nothing for you. You have no future with me. And of course, there's an argument and they resist. But eventually, Orpah sees the reasoning behind it and says it's, it's sensible and it makes sense. It seems the smart thing to do. And so with much weeping, she cries and she goes on back. And, and we've got to live in the text. There is grief here. There is weeping, right? They, they know they've shared so much. I mean, some of you, you get torn up because you're saying goodbye after summer camp for the summertime, right? You're together, what, one, two months? And there's tears and, oh, I miss you and everything like that. You're together just for two months looking after other people's kids. How about a decade together, surviving together? And the, the tears are after four years of college. It's like, oh, man, friends forever. Times three, four, five, times 10. It's emotional. But Naomi's like, no, it's stupid to follow me. Go home, go home. Orpah did. But Ruth refused. And of course, we have that just that powerful statement from Ruth in verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. What a confession of faith. And you gotta ask yourself, where did that come from? When you hear a, con a genuine confession of faith like we see here in Ruth, you can only trace that back to one source, and that's God himself. This is a God thing that a woman like Ruth would make a declaration like that and commit herself, not just to her mother-in-law, but also to her mother-in-law's God, to Yahweh, to the Lord God of heaven. Her determination is staggering. It's a God thing. Where there is real faith, it's a God thing. And we see it here in Ruth. I mean, think about it. What advantage does she have? Humanly speaking, what advantage does she have in sticking with Naomi? I mean, there's no, there's no economic advantage for a widow in the ancient Near East. They're heading toward a dead end together. I mean, it's like we said a week ago. It's not like you could go to community college and sort of retool yourself and go find a new, a new route in life. They have nothing. There's just, it's just pure survival until the grave. No economic advantage. Certainly no social advantage. After all, I mean, Ruth is leaving the only social network she really has or whatever relatives she has back in Moab. She's leaving them all behind. There's no ethnic advantage. She's going to a foreign country. She will be the Moabite woman. And there's no psychological advantage. Like, in case you haven't noticed, did you notice? Naomi's not doing very well, is she? Like, she's not, she, as we would say, she's not in a good place. She is grieving. She is hurting. She's bitter. And she believes full on that it's God that's done it to her. And I would say that she's not wrong. God has dealt her a bitter hand. And sometimes, you know, we, you, you read Naomi's statements about God and how he's dealt with her, and I'll tell you this, it may be hard to take, but I would take this kind of faith any day over some of the superficial nonsenses in Christendom now. She believes that there is a God who's in control of all things, and she recognizes that in her bitterness, God is in and around that, and it's come from him. Now, what she doesn't see, what she doesn't see is, yeah, there's been some tough things, but there's also been some good things. But she's not in a good place, is she? And then they get back to Bethlehem. Now put yourself in Naomi's shoes. She leaves probably with great anguish over 10 years earlier with her husband and her sons, and now she comes back alone except for this Moabite woman. And just, just imagine like your high school reunion, and you come back in there, and you're just like, 
and you hear, is that, put your name in there, is that Naomi? Like, it could be like, oh, is that Naomi? No, no, is that Naomi? Here she comes back home, and she says what she's bracing herself for, the, the, the gossip around town, which spreads like wildfire, but Naomi, she's back, she's alone, she's got some Moabite woman with her. I think we had heard that her husband died, and her son's died, and here she is back, and when she shows up in town, she says, don't call me Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant. I'm not pleasant. Call me Mara. She means bitter. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has marred me. God had dealt bitterly with me, Naomi would say. But what she didn't see, she wasn't wrong. But what she didn't see is that God had not only dealt her a difficult hand, but he also had something more in store for her. Yes, he called her through severe trial. Yes, he ordained for her and led her through bitterest grief. But that's not all he did. As she stands there and says, do not call me Naomi, verse 20. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You can imagine her very expressively. Imagine her saying that. If she, was, if she flailed her arms off, she would bump into someone. That would be Ruth. You see, she, in a sense, she said, I went away full, but God has brought me back empty. But it's almost like she forgot she actually went away empty, which is why she went away in the first place. But I don't argue with her. There's a kind of emptiness that she came back now. But we see, we see in the text that she's not empty. In fact, if we go ahead in the story, and I don't want to spoil the rest of the story for you, although I kind of did last week, but the reality is, if you go ahead in the story, she's got a lot more fullness than she realized, because Ruth is amazing. And God is going to do some great things for Ruth. There's going to be, like, by the end of the book, there's going to be some really good things happen. In fact, just go over to chapter 4 and verse 17. And through Ruth, there's, there's good things to happen. It says there, the women that greeted them in this scene here, saying, is this Naomi? In chapter 4 and verse 17, the women in the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Who's the him? It's a baby that's going to be born. Naomi's cradling and rocking this baby. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. God's going to, he's going to do something, something coming. She doesn't see it, but there's something good coming. And here's the principle I want you to see. Look at this on the screen here. Can we go to the next slide? The God who takes away is also the God who gives. The God who takes away is also the God who gives. Loved ones, don't just skip over this first part. He does take away. He took away from Naomi, a husband, sons. He's sovereign over everything. That means he's in control. He's never not in control. And yes, there's lots of mystery with that, but don't miss that truth. Naomi gets it. She says in verse 13, she says in chapter 1 to verse 13, she says about God, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She said in verse 20, she said, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Say, Naomi gets something. She believes in a sovereign God who's always in control. Don't skip over this. He takes away, and he does take away at times. And it hurts. 
And it causes oftentimes in us a crisis, a crisis of faith because we believe in a good God. We believe in a merciful God. We believe in a God who is loving and caring, who's always got his eyes on us, who knows the number of the hairs on our head. We believe in a good God and he does at times take away and there's the crisis. What do you do with that? How do you reconcile the goodness of God with the badness of life? Ah, what you see is what Naomi in this moment didn't see. She wasn't wrong that God had dealt her a bitter hand. But she was wrong about something. She said, I've come back empty. But we know better. No, no, you're not empty. Because see, the God who does take away is also the God who gives. And what did he give her? Well, he gave her Ruth. And also, too, the end of verse 22. I mean, it seems unremarkable to you and to me because we don't care much about barley generally. But it says, when they came to Bethlehem, see that in verse 22? When they came to Bethlehem, sorry, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And it's the barley harvest where Ruth is going to meet a man, the man named Boaz. And I don't want to wreck the story on him, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. They're going to meet each other, and there's going to be love, and there's going to be like fireworks, and there's going to be a wedding, and there's going to be a baby, and there's going to be a king over Israel, and there's going to be a savior of the world. And it all starts with Ruth and barley harvest. Don't miss this. Yes, he takes away. But he also gives. Yes? True? You've got to acknowledge that. You've got to see that. See, the reality is, is that oftentimes in the bitterness of life, we find ourselves blinded. Beware, loved ones, of the blinding power of bitterness. The bitterness is understandable. It makes sense. After all, there are times in which we find that he's a God who does take away. But we also have to see that he's also a God who gives. One pastor said this. I thought this was insightful. He said, when we have decided that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness. We become so bitter that we can't see the rays of light peeping around the clouds. So you might overhear yourself say, I've got nobody. Nobody? Like nobody. I got nothing. Nothing? Like nothing? No thing at all? Nothing is going right in my life right now. Nothing's going right? Nothing at all? It's understandable that in our sorrow and in our frustration and in the darkness, we don't see the goodness of God. But this passage calls on us to lift our eyes and it shines for us light in the darkened room to see that yes, he is a God who takes away, but he's also a God who gives. And his giving far outweighs his taking. Dale Ralph Davis illustrates it this way. He tells the story of a construction worker who was on a job site at night. They're working at night, so it's dark outside, and uh, you know maybe they have construction lights around the, the project, and there's lots of heavy machinery going on. There's this one guy who's a construction worker, and he's working way on top, at the top of a wall, a very tall wall, and he's working up there, and something happens, and he slips, 
and he slips. And as he's falling, he's able to catch the top of the wall and just sort of hang on. So you can imagine there he is hanging onto the wall, feet kind of flailing in the air, and he's trying to hold on, and he starts to call out, help, help, somebody help me. But there's all, all this heavy machinery, heavy equipment going on. No, nobody hears him. It's, it's dark. Nobody sees him. And so he's up there holding on, help, somebody help me. And he's holding on and holding on. And as you know how it goes, right? You're trying to hold on. All of a sudden, your muscles start to, to shake, and he's, he's trying to keep his grip on there, but he's starting to slip, and he's getting desperate, crying out, help, somebody help me. But nobody sees him, and nobody hears him, and he's slipping and holding on and holding on, and he can feel him sort of slipping, 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 and finally, and just one night, ah, somebody help me, but nobody responds, and he loses his grip, and he falls three inches onto a scaffold that he didn't see in the dark. What's the point? Sometimes God gives us things that we don't see in the darkness, Ruth, barley harvest, a friend, a small group, faith to keep trusting, a word, a promise. The God who takes away is also the God who gives. Let me ask you, what has God given you? In fact, I got a little challenge for you especially if you're in life's bitterness right now. I want to challenge you today to name five things that God has given you. Five things. Now, some of you are just like, oh, that's easy. I'm rounding them off right now. Yeah, but the person sitting across from you, they're struggling right now in the bitterness and the darkness to see one or two things because life is hard right now. And so that person, especially, I challenge you, I want you to push yourself and think what are five things that God has given me? And name them. Jot them down. And if God gives you grace to identify five real things he's given you, and you get to that fifth thing, then I want to push you just a little further. Identify three more things. You name five. What, what are three more things that God has given you? Then when you get those three more things, identify two more things that God has given you. And then one more. And then look back over that list of the 11. And we're not skipping over. We're not denying this part. That there are times when God calls us through seasons of sorrows. Through the dark valley. We're, we acknowledge that. But we're also looking by faith. And we're fighting with faith to see he's also the God who gives. Because the God who takes away is indeed the God who gives. Also, second principle I want you to see is this is that God works, like he works all the time. Not just in spite of our troubles, but through them. He works not just in spite of our troubles, but through them. The bitter events of Naomi's life turn out to be, in the end of the book, means by which God carried out his good, gracious purposes. God indeed had a plan. And sometimes we say that, oh, God has a plan. And sometimes we can be a little flippant about that, which is super annoying when the person you're saying it to is grieving. But when you say it sincerely and in full faith, then you're talking biblically. He does have a plan. He does have a purpose. It's wise as we care and comfort for one another, we don't lead with that, but we do come to that. That he does have a purpose, and he is at work. What I mean by when I say that he works not just in spite of our troubles, but through them, is I want to be clear. I'm not saying that God 
you know, the pain and sorrows, that when those things happen, it's not like God says, oh, okay, calamities happen in your life. Okay, how am I going to make this good? Ah, this is what I'll do. I'll, I'll turn this out for good. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that God ordains the thing. And as he leads you through the valley, he uses that on purpose, part of his plan, part of his providential working, he uses that on purpose to do good in many, many ways. That the very thing that causes grief is many times the thing that God is using to carry out his good and perfect will. I think of a couple of examples. Think, for example, of a man named Joseph in the Old Testament. You know the story of Joseph? He, he, was, the, he was part of a large family. And uh, he, had some, well, he had some bad things happen to him. Among those things was his brothers sold him into slavery. Okay? If, you are, if your family is messed up, okay, you can, there's lots of people in the Bible. If misery loves company, and there's a part of me that believes that's true, there's, I mean, it, it messed up. Messed up. His brothers sold him into slavery. Then, a little while later, he finds himself falsely accused and put in prison dealt a bitter hand. But then later, we see that God was at work here. And through ways that only God could orchestrate, he's not only freed from the bonds of prison, but he's raised up in a foreign country to second to Pharaoh. And when you get to the end of a story, you see God's purpose was to save the nation of Israel through the suffering of Joseph. It's wild. And Joseph saw it. He didn't necessarily see it at the time. But when his brothers showed up in Egypt for what turned out to be a pretty awkward reunion, Joseph declared this to them in the end of the narrative. He said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now don't miss that phrase. He didn't say God figured out a way to make it good. He said, no, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is not the author of sin, but he's sovereign over it. The evil purposes of Satan and sinners are under God's sovereign rule. He's always in control. Another great example, think about Jesus. We are a people who are saved by a crucified Savior. On a human level, though, how did Jesus get crucified? He was murdered. At last I checked, murder is a pretty serious sin. And the apostles, in speaking to people who are from among the people who crucified Jesus, this is what they said in Acts 2 and 23. Look at this verse. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Think about that. Well, of course, God had a plan. In fact, we read in Scripture from eternity past, talk about mind-blowing. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He says, and you crucified, and you, and, and you crucified, and he was killed by the hands of lawless men. So there was sinful action there. You crucified him, but don't lose sight of the fact that there was a God over all. And so what we're seeing here is we, we realize as we look at the story of Ruth and we look at the story of Joseph, we look at the story of Jesus, we look at the story of church history, look at the story of your life. God works not just in spite of our troubles, but through them. And in particular, I'd say in particular in two ways. God works through our troubles to do good in us. Like he uses our troubles and our sorrows to do good things in us. Remember Pastor, Pastor Robbie Simons here a number of weeks ago? He took us to this text here, James 1. I want to see this text again. 
James says to believers, he says, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Are you in a trial right now? Well, James says, consider, see it, think of it as, reckon it as joy when you encounter the trials of various kinds. Why? Well, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's he saying here? He's saying that God, God is at work over the hard things in your life to do good things in you, to shape you, like to, to, give, to give you a fortified, strong faith, to give you staying power and endurance in the faith, to increase your capacity to keep following Jesus and obeying him and serving him and loving him and worshiping him with greater and greater intensity, even as difficulty comes. You find yourself in time, God working through the hard things to make you more and more like Jesus. He uses those things to do good in you. Here's another great, I think this is a great example of this. Think of David himself. He's mentioned in Ruth. And um, David, remember, remember the first big thing he did like before he was king when he kind of came on the scene? Remember? Remember what he did? He fought somebody. What was the, what was the guy's name again that he fought? It was Andre the Giant, wasn't it? Was that his name? What, what, was, what was the name again? Oh, yeah, Goliath. Goliath. I just want to make, it's just messing with me. I want to make sure you're there. You're with me. Goliath. Remember the story of Goliath? Great big giant. And what did David do? He went out and fought him. Now, I want to, I want to show you here a quote from David. And the quote here, the context is he's trying to convince King Saul, David is, to let him go out and fight the giant. And he's looking at this boy and saying, What, what, what can you do fighting this giant? Here's what David said. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Oh, isn't that cute out there looking at the sheep, eating his bologna sandwich, petting the sheep, that thing. Is that, no, put that out of your mind. Look what he says next. And when there came a lion or a bear and took the lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Imagine, imagine you got like a little billy club, a little club, and a lion turns on you, and what you do is you reach out and grab him by the cheek, and poof. Imagine. I would do that. Now, then what he says, so why is he telling this? The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What's he saying? After fighting... Lions and bears. What's this Philistine? You see what God had done in his life? Would you say that having a lion turn on you would be a kind of trial? Having a bear, a bear turn on you with paw and teeth looking to kill you, would you say that's a kind of adversity? And what did David say? He said, God did something for me. He delivered me. And you see that God was at work in his life through the adversity, through the hard things, to prepare him to be the king, the shepherd of Israel. And friend, I have faith to believe that God is doing that in some of you right now. It's almost as scary as a bear, isn't it? Almost as fearsome as a lion. And of course, really the glory goes to the greater David, Jesus, who would come and would take on a much greater lion and bear and pfft, club sin and club Satan 
See, he's your sufficiency. And he uses these things to strengthen you and me. What bitter thing is God using right now to make you better? The key thing is your mindset. Consider it all joy. Count it all joy. The key thing is your mindset. So the, the key is faith. Like believing God. The means is truth. Taking what God says and believing it. The method is trust. To know what God says, to internalize it and submit myself to what he says and to him. God uses our troubles to do good in us. God uses our troubles to do good through us, too. Think about what he's doing for Israel here in the book of Ruth. He's preparing for them a king. Think about what he's doing for the world through the story of Ruth. We find out later he's preparing the way for the Savior. God uses our troubles to do good through us. That's partly what Paul was trying to say when he wrote to the Colossians. He says in Colossians 1 and 24, he's talking about his gospel ministry. He says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, notice, for your sake. So Paul's like, I suffer, I rejoice in that suffering for your sake. It's, it's for your good that I'm going through hardship. His gospel ministry faced much opposition. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, what, what would be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, nothing's lacking in Jesus' afflictions or sufferings as far as salvation is concerned. His work on the cross is perfect and complete, sufficient to pay for your sins. But what's lacking is taking the work of Jesus and sharing the good news of it with those who need to hear. That's what I believe Paul means when he talks about filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, declaring the message, the good news. So Paul says, I'm suffering doing that, and it's for your sake, for your salvation and for the, the, the salvation of the world. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. You see what Paul's saying? God uses the hard things as the vehicle through which he will do good things for others. So as you suffer for Jesus and keep trusting in him, listen, as you, as you suffer for him and face trials of various kinds and keep trusting in him, God uses that to show forth with greater clarity the preciousness of Jesus. Because you're weeping and you're going through difficulty, but you're still trusting in him. And he's still your treasure. And in the midst of the darkness, the light shines brighter. When we endure opposition or faithfully endure hardship for his sake, others see something of the suffering of Jesus in our lives. And God uses that to do good, yes, in us, but also through us for the sake of others. You know, I, I told you last week about a friend of mine who, when he was a child, suffered terrible abuse. What I didn't tell you last week is that I've been with him on many occasions when he's walked into a room and told his testimony, some of his story, and talked about the preciousness of Jesus and the greatness of the life that he's found in him. And what I've noticed is that again and again and again, when he shows up and shares some of the sufferings and the scars are there, there is rapt attention. And the preciousness of Jesus just seems to be heard clearer on the heels of the hardship. 
That's intentional. God does these things. He takes away, but he also gives. He works not just in spite of our troubles, but through them. So here's where the rubber hits the road. Will you trust him? Will you trust him to do good in you and through you? Will you ask him for eyes to see his goodness in the midst of the darkness, to taste his sweetness when in your mouth there's bitterness? The God who gives, the God who takes away also gives, and he works not just in spite of our troubles, but through them to do good in us and through us.